This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. Special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. Yo, 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 take it out. The world is listening.
Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. My guest is Baynard Woods. He's an award-winning writer and journalist, co-author of I Got a Monster about police corruption. And his new book that we'll be talking about is Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness about coming to terms with his family's history of racism and his own journey to recognize and account for his own whiteness, what that is and the harm that it's done in the world. So welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you were born and raised in the heart of the South in South Carolina. Could you tell us about your family's history and also your relationship with your family? Yeah, so I grew up right outside of Columbia, South Carolina, which was the state capital. It was the birthplace of the Confederacy. And I was raised to be very proud that my family had among them Confederate soldiers and plantation owners and slaveholders. And I'm about to turn 50. So it was in the 70s. And there was this very real sense of like rebellion that came through from the 60s, mixing with lost cause ideology. So the Dukes of Hazard and Smokey and the Bandit and these kind of things were popular. And so I never really had any conception of what the Civil War was actually about or what the real issues were, it was that the Yankees came down and tried to control us. And it wasn't until much later that I started to piece together what it really meant. I mean, they, they told me that my family had held people in bondage, but they said that, you know, the people who were enslaved were happy to be enslaved. And so it was really breaking through, and it's been a long series of breaking through these ideologies that we inherit before we're old enough to decide to accept or reject them that just come down to us with, you know, at family dinner when you're, you're two or three, it's hard to combat that kind of stuff. And it was interesting how you described how they actually teach a completely different version of history down in the South. Yeah. And, and with everything that's going on now, I think that will be re-exacerbated but yeah, at the time that I went to school, both my third and eighth grade South Carolina history books were written by a slaveholder and then revised slightly by his granddaughter over the years. And there were words used in my school like the war of northern aggression or the more neutral version, the war between the states, which Southerners would often use also so as not to even give the war it, its official name because they'd say, well, there's nothing civil about it. And... Yeah, the entire version of history is a mythology that I was taught. It's not true. In front of the State House in South Carolina, one of my earliest memories is there's a cane of George Washington, and it's broken, a statue of George Washington holding a cane, and the cane is broken. And my mom told me when I was a kid that the Yankees, when they came to, when Sherman's army came through, hated freedom so much that they stoned the father of the country in a statue. And... Later, I found out she was just reading that from the plinth. She wasn't making it up. 
And that's the kind of public monuments, the public version of history, especially in South Carolina, that generations of people have been filled with. Mm -hmm. So how did you begin to become aware of this notion of whiteness and your own sense of whiteness in that context? Yeah, you know, there were moments where you could see it, see your own whiteness, where I could see my own whiteness as a kid. But for the most part, post-civil rights, whiteness has been something that wasn't spoken about among white people. And so we would talk about Southernness and all of these other things, but we don't see race. Even though my parents walked through every public door they ever walked through until shortly before I was born said, whites are whites only. And so it was very hard for me to actually ever see it. I left there. I thought I was just able to escape that. And then in 2015, I was living in Baltimore, and which is a black majority city, had been covering the Baltimore uprising after the death of Freddie Gray. And almost immediately after that, I saw that Dylan Roof had gone from 10 miles from where I grew up, where he lived, down to Charleston, went into a church and killed nine black churchgoers, including a state senator, Clementa Pinckney. And I wrote something that night for the Washington Post addressing my family's history. And since then, it was something that I knew I would have to deal with at, at greater length. And then that was really reaffirmed for me at Charlottesville, which I also was covering, and those same kinds of statues that I was taught to revere, and those same myths about those statues I saw people killing for them and willing to kill for them. And so then I knew that it was something that absolutely had to be addressed, that the past really wasn't past, that it was something that was motivating our current political crisis and current political struggles. And so it was something I had to deal with right now. And you say in the book that white people are unconscious of their whiteness, while black people are very conscious of whiteness because their very survival depends on being able to navigate the minefield of living in a white dominated world, which is created by and for white people. So could you explain what you mean by whiteness in this context, and then why it's so hard for white people to see their own whiteness? Yeah, so I go with the book, I go through a series of sort of definitions because one of the things I found is that whiteness is very slippery and is trying to slip away in order to maintain its power. Post-civil rights, the way that you maintain the gains that had been being amassed for 300 years is to pretend that race doesn't exist anymore or something. And, and it was created as a conspiracy. So one way I define whiteness is in terms of a criminal conspiracy, not like QAnon or a conspiracy theory, but like in federal court, a drug conspiracy or something where people will join in an alliance based on something in order to harm others and, and achieve game for themselves. Now, not everyone achieves that game. If you look at the mafia or something, plenty of people end up with concrete shoes in the water or something thinking they were going to get gained. So I'm not saying that white people have perfect lives or anything because of this, but in the 1600s, they created it as a criminal conspiracy to allow them to enslave other people. And so also when people say, well, my family didn't do that. My family came from Italy later or whatever, in federal conspiracy law, you don't have to have been there at the beginning of a conspiracy to be part of the conspiracy where, by definition, the hand of one is the hand of all. So that was one way. But then when I tried to get into, well, how does that work? I thought about 
We put so much thought when we think about race into skin. We talk about skin color. Oh, I just don't see skin color. And so the way that our skin is part of the world, it's outside of us, but it's also part of us, of our body. I thought that the way that our minds function with power is similar. And so if our skin is the place where our body meets the world, whiteness is the place where white people's subjective experience intersects with all of these systems of power. Kwame Ture said that, you know, when you look at a white man, you see an army and a navy behind him. When you look at a black man, you see nothing behind him. And I was trying to see how that army and navy had affected my own thinking and my own mentality and not just the world around me. It's easy for white people at this point to say structural racism, which is sort of just like saying, well, everything's racist and I can't do anything about it. So I'm going to keep living my life, or that's one of the results of that. And I wanted to look at the ways that it intersected with the people that I love, my family, the people that raised me, the people I care about, and to make it more personal so I could dismantle it from within while also trying to fight it out in in the structures in the world. So talk about how you engaged with that and how the people around you responded, particularly your family, your your mother and father, and also some of your closest friends? Well, my father was, you know, he ended up becoming one of the central characters in the book, maybe the central character other than myself. And he was dying the entire time that I was writing the final draft. And so he didn't make it to see what the final product was. But in the beginning, it was interesting because he was, one of the reasons he was such a center of it is because he came of age right at the point when the Civil Rights Act passed. And so he found himself having been raised in this apartheid state and then in a place where we don't talk about, we don't see race anymore. But he became a Trump supporter. He was, you know, all the way from Reagan on was a, a Republican and kept getting more and more vociferously Republican But he also went with me to archives to do research about the family. I later found out he had five brothers who are still alive. And they, amazingly, being baby boomer men from Clarendon County, South Carolina, are all Democrats. And I realized after he was in the archive with me and we found all of these slave records that he wrote an email to one of his brothers, the most ardent Democrat among them, saying, see, look, your family was slaveholding families. You can't ever run for office. These were Democrats who were doing this. And so it was part of that same argument that was always deflecting, always saying, what about? Always pushing off just for pure cynical winning the argument more than actually caring about a thing like that. And that broke my heart. You know, another main character was a very close friend from seventh grade on. We go skateboarding downtown at the very beginning of the book. And towards the end, we have a real blow up after Charlottesville and he had become a Pizzagate person, a QAnon person, and was warning me of a coming civil war and that people he knew were very armed. And he's actually disappeared and gone offline since Trump and then went offline after January 6th. So I don't know what has come of him. I've had an amazing response from friends in Baltimore and all around and, and from strangers just writing about how their backgrounds were entirely different, and yet they could see themselves in this. And that was the really important thing to me. A lot of the books, especially written by white people about whiteness, white fragility, for instance, which is great, but also feels a little bit like going to the principal's office 
or the HR office. And in fact, it is kind of a human resources manual and there's value in those things, but a lot of people will never be reached by that. So I wanted to reach people who, you know, Dylan Roof, I mentioned earlier, when I looked at how he was radicalized, he went online after Trayvon Martin and started looking up things about whiteness. And what he found was the Conservative Citizens Council, which radicalized him. And he says that was the moment that radicalized me. And so you think one wrong Google search now can take you into such violence that maybe there's a book that could get the screwed up kid who's, you know, screwed up in many of the ways that I've been screwed up and am screwed up. I'm, I'm far from a perfect person. And so I, I want to come to people from that level rather than from the level of, I know everything and I'm scolding you. And so in that way, it's been a really good response from mostly family and friends. Although, to be honest, most of my family hasn't spoken to me about it, which is fair enough because, you know, there's me having sex in there and all kinds of other things that they probably don't really want to talk to me about. So my family's maybe not exactly the audience for it. Mm -hmm. So when white Southerners say, or when any white person says, we don't see color, what does that mean? And could you talk about how that approach is used in relation to other problems that we're facing? Yeah, that's a great question. Lee Atwater, who was a South Carolina political operative, he owned a firm with Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, who we know from more recent events, and ran the Bush campaign and worked on the Reagan campaign. And he said, we don't go around yelling the N-word anymore. We now talk about busing. We now talk about all of these other things rather than talking about race, but they're code for race. And I, I think that he was really laying out not only that, the way that, that a political movement was working using that, but the way that it was working on a ground level. And the way I tried to explain it to my mom was if we were playing a basketball game and one side had shoes and the other side didn't have shoes and started saying, hey, you know, it's, it's not really fair, this game, because we're barefoot and you're not. And we're like, no, we just don't see shoes. Shoes aren't a category. They don't matter. There's no such thing as shoes. That's what we're doing. There, there's been the law for, you know, really since before America was a country because of how many of the laws, the slave code of 1740 in South Carolina, for instance, were incorporated into state constitutions or, or even our national constitution after 1776. You know, we find ourselves in this place where we are still operating under an ideology that we refuse to acknowledge. And, and that's harmful for white people as well. That, that creates all kinds of psychic dissonance and all kinds of ways that we're acting and unable to fathom the consequences of our actions or the effects of them in a proper way because we're unwilling to look at the ways that they are amplified by and amplify a power system that we're trying our best in every way possible to maintain without talking about it. Now that that seems harder, now there actually moves to outlaw talking about it. So for years, once there was Black History Month, white people would inevitably say, well, when is there gonna be White History Month? And now that we're teaching white history in, in what is called CRT or critical race theory, and in the 1619 Project, for instance, there's a huge backlash to that because white people don't wanna talk about whiteness and don't wanna talk about white history. What they actually wanna do is maintain the power and the privilege that can come with it based on race, but without actually having to talk about it. And we're seeing in our society that 
some white people are willing to go to great extremes to protect that kind of advantage and ability to carry on in complete denial. And you say disregarding or acting completely outside the bounds of law. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you have the people in state houses all over the country passing laws to make it harder to talk about whiteness and educate about whiteness. And then you have the people in Charlottesville and storming the Capitol and and trying to overthrow an election based on whiteness, on Trump's promise of white supremacy. And one of the things that's important for us to think about too is the way that white supremacy can go beyond white people. White supremacy has always promised rewards to those who support it, even if they're not white. And so you have Enrique Tarrio of the Proud Boys, or you have Clarence Thomas being the most originalist member of the Supreme Court, or at least for a long time, was the most originalist member of the Supreme Court. And originalism is white supremacy. We act like we can separate out some of the thoughts of, say, Charles Pinckney, who was one of the framers of the Constitution, who also lived on a plantation concentration camp. And you can't separate those thoughts. And so Thomas has been greatly rewarded by being part of the white supremacist project, even though he's not white. Yeah, that, that's such a bizarre conundrum. It is only if we think really about it as just skin color and identity, and we don't think about it as a political ideology. But whiteness has really always been a political ideology. And one group that has not been considered white yesterday may be considered white by tomorrow, like the Irish, for instance, for a long time were not considered white, and then later on were. And so white was Anglo, mostly in America at first, and then that began to expand and expand and expand, much in the same way that an organized crime group would. Now you have inner circles and outer circles and stuff where there are more greater and lesser privileges, or take like the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. But you also have this idea of race that it will always come down to ultimately. Mm-hmm. So when you discovered some of the darker side of your own family history, how did you feel about that? And how did it affect the way you felt about yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in in some ways, that's the whole book. So I'll do my best to answer briefly. I can't think of a time when I didn't know that my family were slaveholders, that they were the kind of people that believed that they could own other people and that were willing to use extreme violence to enforce that belief. And, you know, I didn't think of it in those terms, but that, oh yeah, they had slaves was the way it was told to me. When I was in my 20s, it's embarrassing how slow my my development is. When I was in my 20s, my dad told me that my great-grandfather, his grandfather had killed a black man and had to flee the state for a while, sometime after the Civil War. And I thought of it as kind of a cool... Faulkner story or Cormac McCarthy story. And I I really had that idea that the past doesn't matter, that the past is separate from us. And this is just an interesting bit of history. In fact, when I was was telling a cousin the story and I saw an older black man, we were at a bar and he was looking over and looked angry the way I was just talking about a lynching in casual conversation. And I couldn't understand why he was angry. And I felt like I was the one who was slighted. And so it wasn't until when I did see the Mother Emanuel massacre in Charleston, I felt like I saw in Dylan Roof's face, my great-grandfather's face for the first time. 
and the reality of what that would have been. And I felt also that, you know, that movie Us, the Jordan Peele movie, where part of ourselves can get left behind somewhere and become monstrous. I felt something like that in the bowl cut that he had was the haircut that I and all the other kids that grew up near me in my neighborhood at the time had. And so it felt like all of these things I thought I could have repressed were bursting out in the form of fury and violence against people like my neighbors here in Baltimore. And that made me feel guilty, not in the way that, you know, usually we talk about white guilt as the subjective state, and it usually carries along with it a a sort of tag that like, oh, it's unwarranted guilt. I think of white guilt as an objective fact. There's a great deal of objective guilt, and we don't have to feel guilty or not in order for that objective fact to be reality. But what I did feel at that moment was failure more than guilt, that maybe had I done something better a generation earlier to address the twisted lost cause ideology that I'd been raised on, that someone like him wouldn't have gone to all of these sites, waving rebel flags to battlefields, to plantation sites, and done that as a a sort of pilgrimage before committing these terrorist acts. And so I felt a great sense and still feel a great sense of, not of guilt, but of responsibility, of personal responsibility to try to solve this problem that I had really been a part of unwittingly and had been unwittingly indoctrinated into very much the way that, you know, as a man, I also realized how much effort was put into making me be masculine and manly and all of these things, which I very much wasn't. And how much of that kind of patriarchal ideology I also just ingested without knowing it. And so in both cases, I feel a great sense of responsibility to use the education and the privilege and stuff that I've had to try to undo some of that. Talk about some of the things you have actively done in the world to try to accomplish that. Yeah, that's a great question too. And it's a hard question to answer because anything we say is not enough. And then anything you say may be sound like bragging or trying to, um, you know, I was wrong. A lot of things that I thought I was doing to change that as a reporter, I mainly covered police here in Baltimore for a long time, wrote a book about corrupt police here, was covering the all of the Black Lives Matter protests and being on the front lines to where maybe my presence was causing police to be less violent. Maybe I was doing some good in, in allowing people to see what police were doing. On the other hand, I was benefiting from that. After covering that uprising for the Baltimore City Paper, I got a job at The Guardian to cover the trials and, you know, a much bigger outlet. And so I've really tried to think about that. And I had a crisis in the middle of the beginning of COVID when here in Baltimore, there were a number of mainly young black men waiting for trial in COVID infested jails that couldn't get out, were approved for home detention, but it cost $17 a day to pay for those ankle bracelets and they couldn't afford it and their lives were being at risk. As a journalist, I'd never given money to a cause or a candidate or anything like that. And so I was reluctant to do it. But then I thought, I I actually have the opportunity to take my federal stimulus money with the extra little Schadenfraud benefit of signed by Trump and direct that into reparations to get young black men who've not been convicted of anything out of chains right now. 
Also, you know, you notice in the book that my name is crossed out. And that was a gesture to, because my name, both the Baynard and the Woods are Confederate monuments to these people. And so it was a way of trying to address that, but that would mean nothing if I haven't tried to put the name of Peter Lemon, the man that my great-grandfather was involved in assassinating, back into the record. The crime had been so thoroughly covered up, he'd been almost entirely forgotten. And what happened to him had been almost entirely forgotten. But fortunately, a local Black activist in Clarendon named George Frierson also knew about Peter Lemon, and he and I started working together. We presented to the county council trying to get them to name the county building after Peter Lemon, and then I and my family are buying a tombstone marker for him there. We found where he was buried. We found the place he was killed, and we're going to try to get the state to memorialize that with a historical marker. And then there's what you do every day in the city where you live. And so I've been really lucky to be able to work with a number of Black-led organizations and Black people here who are fighting for their houses. We have a huge amount of displacement here in Baltimore. And to be able to use some of the media skills that I have in order to attract the media to causes here that need to be seen. And none of that is bragging because none of that is anywhere near enough. And it's up to each of us individually to try to figure out what we owe in the course of our lives and what we need to do to make that right. But it's also something that we need to do collectively and in a way of lobbying. We absolutely need reparations on a federal level, but also on a state and local level. In redlined neighborhoods, we need to be putting money into the neighborhoods that we've destroyed by putting racist highways and stuff through them. And so trying to work in that direction as well. You mentioned that a lot of well-meaning white people are wanting to feel validated by Black people for being quote-unquote good white people. Could you talk about that and the burden that puts on Black people who are already over? Yeah, I won't try to speak for Black people and necessarily lay out the burden that it puts on them But maybe an example will illustrate a little bit, because it's not something that I'm free from, that desire. I mean, I I told you then that I don't want to feel like I'm bragging or don't want to, because you'll hear white people say, well, I just can't win. And that's absolutely right. Like, it's not about winning. There's no way that, you know, imagine a German saying that about the Holocaust in World War II, like, oh, well, we just can't win when we're talking about this. It's like, yeah, you can't. But they have the idea of never again Whereas we have the idea the South will rise again, which is what I was raised with. But when my dad and I went to an archive, he was a 75-year-old Trump-supporting white man. And the archivist, ML Witherspoon, was a younger black woman. And I, in me, in writing that scene, one of the more interesting things was to calibrate what my mind was doing, bouncing back and forth between, oh no, is my dad going to say something racist? How do I communicate to her that I'm better than my dad, that I'm not racist like that? There was a great book by Peter Wood called Black Majority about the early history of South Carolina. And I saw it on their shelf and I wanted to mention it, not because I actually wanted to talk about it, but because I wanted to show that I was down in some way. And, you know, it's ultimately like being like, oh, don't you love that new Beyonce album to your black friend or whatever, or talking about feminism to a woman trying to get a date. And so those things happen in our mind. And that's the other thing is 
is this is an ideology that we've been raised with. And we're in this dangerous moment right now where white people who want to be better try to appear perfect already. Try to not acknowledge that things like that happen in their own minds, even as they're trying to be better. And so we have to be open about our mistakes that we make and, you know, talking about them with each other, with other white people. And so that young people can see that it's not just that some Calvinist thing where you're either born not racist or you're born racist. And then that's just it that we're all in this ideology. It's like capitalism and they were born not accidentally together, but I can say I'm an anarcho-syndicalist or whatever I want. But when I go to the store and I'm paying with dollars, I'm still participating in that economy. And whiteness is an economy that we're participating in. And so at the moment that we're putting that burden on our black friends or the people we wanna be allies with, of trying to impress them with how good of white people we are, that puts them in the situation of having to think about, talk about, deal with racism with us, maybe doubt us. Oh, is that true? Maybe challenge in something that they're having to think about this all the time. And it's something that we rarely have to think about. A black person walking out their door, even in a black majority city like Baltimore, is often very quickly reminded by police, you know, and, and many other institutions here that they're black wears, we're rarely reminded that we're white unless we're in a majority black situation. And then we feel it very acutely. And then we want to show how good we are. And that often just makes things awkward and weird. And so, you know, also don't go around your black friends and confess every racist thing you ever thought or said either. That's also a burden. Like these are our problems that the best thing we can do is deal with them ourselves so that we don't have to burden people of color with them. So it's like for white people to not think that there's a way to be absolved for our dark past or our ancestral history, but to learn to just maybe not be comfortable with that discomfort, but to just own it and not try to escape it, not try to sweet talk our way out of it kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we may be able to get beyond it, but I don't think we in this generation will be able to. I think it's a long-term thing. And in order for that to happen, we have to do really rigorous self-examination as a culture and try to root out the racist institutions that we have and the racist basis of so many institutions. And we're seeing them falling apart. You know, the Electoral College has caused so many problems ever since 2000. The Senate is causing intractable problems right now. And those were all created based on racism, both of those institutions. And so once we start to root out the racism in the institutions, and once we do something like reparations and have an actually more just society that's not based on racism, then we might be able to do something about it. But what white people need to do right now is not just come to terms with it and accept it, but actively try to dismantle it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that line that the South will rise again. Could you talk about that and what that means and also what that means for the state of our society right now? Yeah, I heard it so often growing up. My dad was a big NASCAR fan and I went to NASCAR races and stuff. And no one ever said when they said that, oh, we're going to re-enslave people. Or no one said that to me, to a kid. 
But whiteness since then has been the sense of aggrieved innocence. We see it in Trump all the time and in the Trumpists that somehow it's unfair against him. Everything is always unfairly stacked against him and he's having to fight. And that was the sense that suffused Colombia and the South in general. And it was Jesus is going to rise again, come back, and the South is going to rise again. And both were a sense that the world has fallen, that there's something inextricably wrong with the world that has to be fixed. And it was almost a religious thing that would bring it back. Now, what we cursed all the time as kids weren't people of color, weren't black people, but were Yankees. And so the way of sort of removing race from it and still being able to talk about it was by saying, oh, these Yankees came and they enforced all of this stuff on us. Of course, the things they forced on them were not believing that you could own and torture people in the 1860s and then in the 1960s that you couldn't discriminate based on race and in schooling and, and restaurants and such. And so it had everything to do with race, but it was the beginning of that. We're not going to talk about it in those terms. But it's a violent ideology, ultimately, a violent anti-government ideology that we've seen popping up all over. In the 90s, when I went, my friend Chuck in the book ended up moving to West Virginia. And in the 90s, his friends there were burying assault rifles in PVC pipes in the hills because they were worried Bill Clinton was going to take their assault rifles and they were going to kill people. And every day online, if you follow right-wing people, there are people talking about civil war. There are people talking about 1776 and overthrowing the tyranny. I think this is going to become so much more exacerbated as climate change comes. The part I forgot on your earlier question is how does this function with other problems we're facing? You know, if we couldn't see that people who looked almost identical to us, except with darker skin, slightly different facial structure or whatever, were human beings, how do we expect to care about the thousands of invisible or ugly or whatever species that are going extinct every day. And so the refusal to acknowledge the reality of the past and this lost cause mythology has led to alternative facts, led to climate change denial, and the idea that we can just make up whatever we want and that power is what determines what we say is true or not true. And so that is just extremely dangerous. And as resources become more scarce due to climate change, I think we're going to see a reversal of that climate denial. And what we're going to see is that the globalists and the, you know, internationalists and people of color and leftists and anti-fascists are the ones who are really doing all the causing of climate change. And we're going to see things like in the Grapes of Wrath and the Dust Bowl in the 30s, bands of vigilantes waiting at state lines and stuff to beat people trying to come in to get resources. And I think we're going to see eco-fascism and eco-racism really begin to grow and spread. I, I saw a bunch of memes about it going around this weekend from the right, and it's really, really terrifying stuff. And it's in places like just outside of Portland, Oregon, and Washington State, and Idaho, and places we may think of as leftist places, I think are going to be the birth of these really eco-fascist, eco-racist places. And we'll also see it in the South with this idea that the South will rise again. I think we'll, along with the outlawing of CRT, we'll see a new resurgence in teaching lost cause version of the Civil War and the Confederacy. And we'll start to hold up as the agrarians did, you know, in the 20s, this agrarian way of life as something to 
emulate rather than something to, you know, interrogate. Mm -hmm. So you briefly mentioned your great great grandfather, Irvin McSwain Woods, and that there was this mythology about him killing a black man and having to leave South Carolina and escape to Texas. And that story or that, that mythology is a thread that runs through this book. It's not the main story, but it, it is a thread that has significant meaning because when he came back to South Carolina, he was instrumental in the undoing of reconstruction after the Civil War. And I think this relates because this is like the historical underpinning to a lot of what you were just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So one reason he was so important to me, he came of age right as the Civil War began. And so he was born in 1842. So he was 18 in 1860. And he had a chance to change. We can't just say, oh, he was just a man of his time. Plenty of people, not enough, but from the South went and fought for the other side or went and worked as doctors or various things on the Union side. And then afterwards, once you lost even, you could have had a chance to change and say, "I'm, you know, this was just wrong. Instead, he became a terrorist, a Klansman, and an assassin, and then later a state legislator who helped pass the Jim Crow laws. And so part of why that was so important to me is in the centuries before that, my family got to South Carolina in the 1600s. And slave-owning, slave-holding families tended to marry other slaver families. And so the thousands of people that were bound and tortured and raped by my family is almost unfathomable and held in totalitarian conditions over hundreds of years. And so it was hard to get my mind around what all of that was. And the same with the creation of the Jim Crow laws. Those had such vast impact. But this one murder, this one assassination or lynching of a black county commissioner trying to overthrow the Reconstruction government, and then the later storming of the Capitol, occupying the Capitol by people who were called red shirts rather than wearing red hats, and they were successful, did overthrow the Reconstruction regime. And so all of that made this figure of Zervin McSwain Woods be the one who I thought would help me understand what all of this helped my mind get around what the cost of all of this might have been on the world and what the psychological state of this kind of monstrosity of when he was five years old, his father put out an ad that I happened to find, probably plenty more, but advertising for someone who had run away from bondage from them, you know, and any white man could bring this person named Jim who escaped back. And what does that do to a five-year-old? And that's part of what Southerners specifically, but white people in general, have never dealt with. When, you know, plantation sites are doing a little better now at educating about the lives of enslaved people there. But the thing we still don't do is try to plumb the depth of the evil that must have been in the minds of our forebears to be sitting in these elegant homes surrounded by concentration camps and that were built on concentration camp style labor. That kind of psychological monstrosity is then what gets passed down to us. In 1740, when South Carolina passed the so-called slave codes after the Stono Rebellion, 
they set up really a dual system of law where white people were protected by the law, but not bound by it. And black people were bound by the law, but not protected by it, except insofar as they were the white person's property. And so the white person's property was protected. And I realized that that psychology still affected me and the logic of almost all of the white people that I know that we do. You see it in the two Coopers in Central Park a couple of years ago with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper. She's illegally walking a dog, not on a leash, violating the law. He's legally looking at birds. When he asks her to obey the law, the first thing she does is call the police because in her mind, it was not his job to be protected by the law. It was his job to be bound by it. And it was not her job to be bound by the law, but her job to be protected by it. And so seeing that in my own mind, when I crashed my car, when I was drunk, when I was 16 into the back of a black driver and my grandfather got me out of it as one of the countless instances, it's just horrifying to me to think how deeply those slave codes have formed the psychology of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And now I think would be a, a really good time for you to read that declaration of freed slaves from 1865. Yeah, so this was, to give it a, a little bit of context, this was the island my grandmother grew up on, Edisto Island. It was vast, vast, vast majority of enslaved people. It was founded by John Locke, the philosopher, the original proprietor of it, and it was called Locke Island at first. And but it was very few white families that enslaved a vast majority of the black people there. Sherman took the Bay of Beaufort in 1863 and gave the land to the enslaved people there because the white people had already fled. If they agreed to continue growing the cotton for the war effort for the rest of the war, they did that. The land after Lincoln's death was then given back to the enslavers. And my family had always told me how happy and you know how much better it was for the enslaved people when they were enslaved. And here's what they actually had to say. And, and it was on the historical record. So my family should have known it. So discovering this was somewhat crushing. You ask us to forgive the landowners of our island. You only lost your right arm in war and might forgive them. The man who tied me to a tree and gave me 39 lashes and who stripped and flogged my mother and my sister and who will not let me stay in his empty hut, except I will do his planting, and be satisfied with his price, and who combines with others to keep away land from me, knowing I would not have anything to do with him if I had land of my own. That man I cannot well forgive. Does it look as if he has forgiven me, seeing how he tries to keep me in a condition of helplessness? And they go on to say that these people are their all-time enemies. So they were the enemies of the white people in the North for only four years, but these are our all-time enemies. Mm -hmm. Could you also talk about the legacy of Martin Gary and the connection to your family? Yeah, this really struck me with such force on January 6, 2021. Martin Gary was the architect of overthrowing the Reconstruction regime in South Carolina in 1876. Only Mississippi and South Carolina had really been left with Reconstruction governments in the South. And he took a plan partly from corresponding with people in Mississippi. And it involved first voter fraud, 
claiming to win elections that you didn't win, which you know is, is familiar enough, and, and also voter suppression to extreme degree, murdering countless people. Congressman Robert Smalls put it in the tens of thousands of people who were assassinated to stop them from voting between 1868 and 1876. Huge numbers, the Hamburg massacre, the Ellington massacre, murdering sitting state senators, and then claiming to have won the election, sending an army. This part was the part that was really orchestrated by Gary as well. Wade Hampton, who was the actual candidate, did the more Trumpy kind of thing at first of saying, distancing himself from the radicals like Gary, who said, we just need to kill all of the black people. It's what we need to do. But so Gary then came up with a plan where they storm and attack the Capitol. They held it for a long time, for a number of weeks, with both sides in there. So they actually legitimately elected Republican government and the white supremacist Democratic government. Finally, when the federal troops left, the white supremacist party regained control and what they call redemption. And I was raised to think that Reconstruction, the first multiracial experiment in democracy that this country had ever seen, and that part of the country's particularly, really having Black people involved deeply in government was the worst time ever. That's another part of that lost cause myth. And I'd never heard of Martin Gary. Most people had not heard of Martin Gary, even though he's a genocidal coup planner. And when I went and found Irvin McSwain Woods's grave, beside it was a grave of, you know, his children were buried there. And there's one who died in infancy named Martin Gary in a dozen years after the coup had happened. And so it made me think like, that's like naming in 2035, naming a kid Steve Bannon Woods or something. You have to be very, very, very committed to that person and that ideology and that regime to name a child that a decade later. And I wrote about all of that the day of January 6th, because I was at the point in my book where I was researching all of this when it happened. And after the Klan had been outlawed, when my great-grandfather assassinated Peter Lemon in 1871, it was the day that Congress passed the Third Enforcement Act, which was also called the KKK Act. And it allowed Grant to declare martial law in South Carolina. That's the only thing that made my great-grandfather have to flee. One of the ways I was able to figure out what case it was was there had been so few periods in the history of South Carolina where a white man would have had to have fled at all for killing a black man. And so that was why he had to flee. The Klan really was busted up from that. So instead of having the Klan, they became rifle clubs. And they basically were the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, the way that we have all of these militias and far-right groups doing that now. And then they re all united in the course of the election of 76, under Wade Hampton wearing red shirts. And this happened on the centennial of the US with the Hamburg massacre when they killed a number of black men. That's when they all started wearing these dyed red shirts. And Gary was the real proponent of that and of much, much more, but of, of all of the violence that led to the overthrow of reconstruction, he was the most forceful advocate. So with all of that in mind and what has happened over the last few years. What are your thoughts about the near-term future for our country and for white and black people? I'm terrified. I think that the Democrats are so ineffectual, so disastrously ineffectual, 
at talking about anything in a real and a clear way, or even at having policy that gives anyone something they can believe in. They've become a party of, at least we're not those guys. And that's all they offer. And I worry that more and more people are going to be drawn towards the white supremacy of the Trump movement as the Democrats continue to act like managers for the corporations who are only going to try to not make things worse. Everyone knows that we're in moments of severe crisis from the pandemic to ecological crisis and so many other things. And the white supremacists and the Trumpists give people like Dylan Roofs and Peyton Gendron, who murdered allegedly murdered a bunch of people in Buffalo based on racist motives, and all of these other people who are confused and screwed up by our deeply screwed up world, they have someone telling them, this is why it's screwed up. This is how you redeem yourself in the same way they did in 1876. And most of the centrist Democrats are just saying, just listen to me and we're not going to be as bad as them and just vote. So I think they may have a little boost in the midterms because of Roe, but I, I really worry that Trump or a Trumpist will take the presidency back in 2024 and things are going to be really grim. And I think there will be more and more white terrorism. And I think, as I said, as resources become more scarce with climate crisis, that that will continue to get worse. And so I think we are on a very short fuse that we absolutely have to start acting as abolitionists, trying to abolish whiteness as much as we can. And by abolish whiteness, I mean challenge and try to abolish this power structure that is allowing this white supremacist movement to flourish. Because I really think that, you know, the Bidens and the Pelosi's don't really see the danger. I believe they would rather have a Trump than a Bernie Sanders, because when they have a Trump, then they're hashtag resistance and they're suddenly heroes instead of just corporate hacks. And when you have someone who, you know, they say is a socialist, then they look like corporate hacks rather than heroes. And so I really worry that the DNC is going to fail at doing anything to address the challenge while trying to squash anyone who is addressing the challenge. And that the far right is going to be further and further motivated. And I think that the storming of the Capitol was just the beginning and not the end at all. And now I think they will you know, we see it on the state level happening already with they're putting in people in place to just make the elections go the way they want them to go rather than any legitimate kind of counting. And that is what happened at the end of the Reconstruction period that brought in Jim Crow. And so we went from this amazing moment of only a dozen years or so of a multiracial democracy here, but we're only 50 years, 60 years into that now, you know, Schools in South Carolina were not desegregated until the year I was born in 1972, even though Briggs versus Elliott, the case that, that was brought from my dad's hometown of Clarendon County was the first case rolled into the Brown versus Board. And that case started in the 40s. So it took over 30 years to even get to this very brief period that we've had where something like the UN would even acknowledge elections in the South as being fair elections. I think that that is in real danger of being over in this 50-year period from 64 until, you know, 2024 will maybe be seen like reconstruction if we really don't get off of our tails 
and start doing something fast to combat it more than we are. Well, what do you see as things that we could do if we could get off our tails and actually do something? I mean, the civil rights movement provides some kind of example to us and in Reconstruction. You know, for instance, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we had that leaked opinion based on all kinds of racist thinkers and sexist thinkers from early on. And instead of the Democratic majority doing anything to acknowledge this threat except for vote harder and give us money, I mean, we could have stopped the Supreme Court from meeting again to be able to pass that by having protests every day, hundreds of people getting arrested in front of the court every day. We also see with the anti-fascists throughout the Trump era provided a really good model as well of everywhere they went challenging them. In Charlottesville, when the car smashed into the crowd and killed Heather Heyer five years ago, you know, coming up this month, that group had already chased the majority of the Nazis out of town at that point, but they'd heard a rumor that they were going to then go attack a mainly black housing complex. And so they were marching there, not because the black people needed to be saved by white saviors and not because the black people needed these white anti-fascists to go and rescue them, but because they should be able to enjoy their Saturday without having to worry about Nazis coming there anyway. And so by being able to play defense and blocking that at every step, the white people were able to do something at the cost of great injury in life to keep the Nazis away from those whom the Nazis wanted to harm the most. And similarly with the Black Lives Matter protests that you know, here in 2015 in Baltimore and then most of the rest of the country in 2020, these kinds of massive demonstrations of solidarity are necessary. But we also see that the media has to do better. As, as a longtime reporter, I'm just mortified and disgusted in the way that we're moving back right now towards racist criminal justice and undoing every small gain that we've had in recent years because, you know, the New York Times will run these stories about the shoplifting pandemic and everyone's shoplifting. They're not talking about wage theft. They're not talking about what kind of crime is really happening. Every crime that gets reported on as crime is generally a poor person's issue and a poor person's problem and often a person of color's issue. And so we're recriminalizing existing and, and to the extent that it was ever decriminalized existing as a person of color in many places. And we just go along with it. Reporters just go along with it with, oh, public safety is, is at risk. And they, they jump right back in so quickly. So I, I think we have to do everything we can to try, but I'm terrified that it's potentially too late. Yeah, I, I hear that. And of course, white people in this country are for the most part, very comfortable with the status quo. They're not feeling threatened by what's going on. And also, in addition to that, the right is so good at reframing every issue to their own advantage, which helps keep white people in that place. And so it seems so unlikely that there's going to be any kind of real uprising or real meaningful protest against what's happening until it is actually too late. And as you say, it might already be too late. 
Although I hope that's not true. Yeah. And I mean, there is hope in that after 2015 with the Baltimore uprising, I was demoralized also in that like we saw this almost revolutionary moment and then it was entirely crushed. The, the book I wrote about that was how this corrupt police squad became a counterinsurgency force that actively dissipated it. And I think that's been happening in other police departments as well. And will that ever happen again? And then in 2020, we saw it happen even bigger after George Floyd. And so there are moments where it can happen. There are moments and you can't necessarily plan for them and you can't necessarily organize for them, but they would never happen without the organizing and the planning. And the people who were involved in the solidarity movement in Poland, when they took down the communist government there, they all talked about it in something like a form of grace, something that they didn't expect to come at that moment. But it had it, and it wasn't a direct result of all of their work, but it never would have happened without all of their work. And then you never know what the spark will be. And so maybe I'm not a religious person, but maybe while there's no room for hope, there is room for something like grace. But we need to do much better as white people to learn how to work with people of color in those moments and how to deal with organizing white people. I feel like white people who want to be, you know, allies or woke or down or whatever, so often want to just latch on to black things, whether it's culture, organizing, politics, rather than going and saying, what we need to actually do is organize the white people, because that's what they're doing. That's what the right's doing. Like you said, they have such effective messaging. And with very few exceptions, like the John Brown Gun Club, being one, we've given up on the NASCAR people and the gun show people. And we really need to be organizing in places like that and not just give up the fight because people are rightly mad. Wealth inequality is, is horrendous in this country now. And so when they say, oh yeah, things are really bad, that's true, you know, but it's not true because of people of color. It's true because of, you know, what we're very willing to call oligarchs when we're talking about Russia but we're not willing to call oligarchs when we're talking about America. But our oligarchs are the ones who create these conditions and partly just to enrich themselves and partly intentionally, because then that gives you something to organize white people around that look at all of these immigrants and black people and welfare queens and hordes coming to the borders who are wanting to take your stuff. And it's terrifying to think, how many white people do you think in any given town if you said like, Hey, if we got rid of all the black people, you would be able to get a house for cheap again. You would be able to get gas at 99 cents a gallon again. I would be horrified to think of the number of people who would be willing to go along with a trade like that in the same way that they were willing to in Germany. You know, you hear a lot of those right wingers say, oh, well, the Nazis were socialists just to attack socialists, but they were. And the fact that national socialism was take everything from everyone else and give it to ethnic Germans. And it's not hard to see a lot of white people in this country right now being willing to go along with a scheme like that. Mm -hmm. And talking about protest and, and standing up against this, we saw a huge women's white women's movement to do that after the 2016 election. And women are standing up in response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade it seems that the weak area is white men. White men seem to be very, very 
complacent and comfortable where they are, or maybe just unconsciously scared to do anything, if they're even aware of, of there being anything to do. Or on the other side, they're also actively uncomfortable, but they're uncomfortable because they feel like they're having something taken from them, both by women and by people of color. And, and that's another reason my dad was so interesting to me because he, when he was graduating from high school or when he was in high school, he thought he was gonna walk into a world where he didn't have to compete with black people and didn't have to compete with women for most of the jobs that he would have had. And he would have a woman as his secretary, not as, and then that changed. All of those things dramatically changed. And I think he felt grief over that, that he was never able to name or acknowledge. And so it festered that grief. And Trump was able to tap into that sense of loss and sense of grief. But, you know, white women, a majority of white women voted for Trump. And so there were tons of women out at the Women's March. But a majority, we have to remember that a majority of white women still voted for Trump. And so white men are particularly troublesome because we're dealing with racism and sexism and the ways that they're rolled up together and bound up together. I mean, in so many ways, I hated and hate Trump so much because I could see myself in that. I could see some of my ways of arguing with my wife or something, and it was, it was horrifying. But it is something that appeals to a lot of white women as well, and, and that is really troubling. And my mom, for instance, is an evangelical, and she voted for Trump the first time, but not the second time. And then the religious aspect of it is something that, that maybe is too much to go into at depth here, but white evangelicism is also deeply white supremacist and one of the huge problems that ties into all of this. And another thing you touched on briefly is this tendency of white men to argue to be right, that they lose, they lose sense of where they are in relationship to the people around them and will seek to win an argument at any cost. Yeah, I mean, that, that was so clear to me and my dad and my grandfather on my mom's side, so on both sides of my family, and then unfortunately in myself. I'm so guilty of that. And like, it's one of those things that you have to treat. A friend of mine who is in recovery said that she thinks of whiteness like recovery, that it's a thing where you have to look at these triggers and know when to flip that switch in order to not engage in that behavior. And I've been trying to sort of do something like that. And because once you get there in that argumentative mode where that's going to happen, like a switch would go off and then, yeah, it's just burn it all down if that's what it takes to win. And it's one of the least savory parts of myself that I've been really struggling with the most. Yeah, I recognize that in myself as well. And after engaging in it, you know, it's one of the lingering dark spots in my life that I regret each time I get involved in such a thing. Even when I can keep it pretty civil, it still is totally unsatisfying afterward. Absolutely. And then you think, what did winning this mean at all? You know, and yeah, even if you don't go nuclear and don't escalate all the way, you know that you're capable of it. And you know that you wanted to do it at some level. And yeah, that's deeply disturbing. And that's sort of what I mean. I'm so glad that you said that too. And that we're, we're having this conversation like this together because 
that's what it, both with men and with white people, we have to acknowledge those things or they're not going to get better. If we pretend that they're not there, they're just going to get worse and worse. Maybe it won't come out today, but it will, you know, at some point later and, and at some point when we're in a crisis and we need to have our heads be cooler. And yeah, it's so important that we know ourselves in order to be able to even begin being better. And at the end of the book, you wrote that you still have a lot of work to do. And I'm curious if there's other work besides that particular issue that we talked about and how one would go about doing that. Yeah, it's such a strange time to be talking about that because one of the things that, as I said before, like this sort of feeling of glory when I was reporting on the front lines of the Baltimore uprising and not realizing that I was getting rewarded because white people really wanted their news about what was happening with black people through a white voice. They felt I was more trustworthy than a black person reporting on it. And so now I'm talking about this book a lot. And, and in some ways it's promoting the book and it's promoting myself. And so trying not to have that feeling of like, oh, I need to be successful. I need to be more successful than someone else. I need to have some kind of glory. And so I'm so lucky and so delighted that Old friends of mine here, journalism friends, just started a black paper, the Baltimore Beat. It's black controlled, black owned, it's print and alt weekly that will be bi-weekly or fortnightly going out free. And so one of the things that is important for me is not to want to be like, oh, I need to have a byline or I need to have some kind of credit, but to then find younger writers that I can work with and really train and boost and help to get to the place that they can be at the place where I am now and without a lot of alt-weeklies where I, I learned to write at the Baltimore City paper, really. And you were doing all of these things and you would have editors to work with. And, and so working with younger writers of color entirely in the background and trying to get them in the foreground is something that I do think is helping me deal. Because some of it, I don't want to say that only white people have egos and stuff. Some of it is just, you know, talk to black reporters and they have the byline Jones and they want to get there. So, you know, a lot of just being a jerk is just being a person. So I don't want to claim that the people of color are, are not jerks and are perfect and take that humanity away from them as well. But the number of our jerkiness is amplified and our selfishness is amplified and our self-aggrandizement is amplified by all of those systems of power. And so I want to find ways to amplify other voices as much as possible. And, and I mean, great credit to the Holof Center family. The whole reason that paper exists now is they were a small family foundation that had a million dollars that they were giving out, 10,000 here, 10,000 there every year. And they made a conscious decision that that was harming people as much as it was helping them to give the whole million dollars away to one organization, strings off, families out of the way, let them do what they did with it. And that was, you know, a million bucks that allowed this black paper to be. And so he says, Adam Holof Center, the, the lawyer in the family who sort of helped negotiate all this and make it come to be is like most of us white people are six, 10 degrees or something from someone with a million bucks. We could get in a room with someone with a million bucks, many of us. And like that experiment only works if we start doing that. And then we're able to step away and amplify those voices in whatever way we can without it having to be about us. And so I know now answering your question, I'm making it about me. And so that's where it's, again, that dual bind 
And you just can't get out of the dual bind. You have to, Adam has to talk about what his family did in order to convince other people to do it. But it's not about what they did in the end. It's about what the paper will do now. Baynard, it's been wonderful talking with you. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Yeah, I've had a great time, Tony. I've been talking to a number of people and this has been the most enjoyable conversation I've had in a while. And, and I, I really appreciate it. It's partly because you were willing to share some too. And it felt more like a conversation than, you know, just a grilling or something. And so I, I really appreciate it and feel honored that, that you spent the time to talk with me. Well, this is a, a risky and vulnerable book that you've written. And I greatly appreciate the way you expose yourself. And I think that's something very valuable for the rest of us to see. Oh, well, thanks so much. That means a whole lot. My guest has been Baynard Woods. He's an award-winning writer and journalist, co-author of I Got a Monster about police corruption. And his new book that we've been talking about is Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness about coming to terms with his family's history of racism and his own journey to recognize and account for his own whiteness and the harm that it's done in the world. Baynard, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you as well, Tony. Thanks so much. And be well. You too. the time.
Destruction of minds, bodies, and human rights. Stripped of bloodlines, whipped and confined. This is the American pride. It's justifying a genocide, romanticizing the theft and bloodshed that made America the land of the free. To take a black life, land of the free, to bring a gun to a peaceful fight for civil rights. You are desensitized to pulling triggers on innocent lives because that's how we got here in the first place. These wounds sink deeper than the bullet your entitled hands could ever reach. Generations and generations of pain, fear, and anxiety. Equality is walking without intuition, saying the protector and the killer is wearing the same uniform. The revolution is not televised. Media perception is forced down the throats of closed minds, so it's lies in the headlines and generations of supremacy resulting in your ignorant, privileged eyes. Breathe the same and we bleed the same, but still we don't see the same. Be thankful we are God-fearing because we do not seek revenge. We seek justice. We are past fear. We are fed up eating your sh because you think your so-called black friend validates your wokeness and erases your racism. That kind of uncomfortable conversation is too hard for your trust fund pockets to swallow. To swallow the strange fruit hanging from my family tree because of your audacity to say all men are created equal in the eyes of God but disparage a man based on the color of his skin. Do not say you do not see color. When you see us, see us. We can't breathe. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And now I'd like to sing a tune. It was written especially for me. It's titled Strange Fruit. I don't know if you like it. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging. 
from the poplar tree. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck. For the sun to rise, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter. For this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Bye.